May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Uke Audio Podcast. I'm D.C. Pubov, Uke Audio and Uke Archives, preserving the legacy of Shunju Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind, I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we are honored to have as our guest Peter Levitt. Peter has written many books of poetry. He, he was the chief translator to work with Kazuaki Tanahashi, Kaz Tanahashi, on the Shobo Ginso, you know, the incredible, massive collection of the writings of, well, some of the writings <laughs> of uh, Dogen, uh, the founder of Soto Zen. It's, you know, I guess it's considered Dogen's masterwork. Many fascicles, they call them fascicles, I think, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, that was years in the making, and uh, he's worked with uh, Gaz on other translations. He talks about he's done other translations uh, with other people. Um, he's translated Pablo Neruda from Spanish, and um, uh, he's got a Zen group up in uh, British Columbia, uh, the Salt Spring Zen Circle. And the, the website for that is saltspringszencircle.org. And Salt Springs is an island up there. And uh, yeah, you'll hear why he's there, how he got there. Um, hmm. Uh, and, oh, his website, uh, which doesn't have recent... <laughs> The most important recent translation stuff. It doesn't have the Shabogenzo, but um, uh, you can see a picture of him. <laughs> and, and as you know, a lot of past stuff uh, is um, peterlevitt.com, P E T E R L E V I T T.com. So, look, let's just give him a call after our pause to meditate. So, uh, when you hear the bell, Hit pause if you're of such a mind and meditate or whatever for as long as you like. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation. And we'll give Peter Levitt a call.
Hi there, Peter. How are oh, you I doing? Yeah, thanks for your call. Yeah. <laughs> are yeah. you calling through the yeah. internet or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, oh. I'm calling you with Skype. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah, I've, I've used that a few times. I, there's so many different ways that people are using the phone now that I, I never know yeah. what, what it's going to sound like. <laughs> yeah, well, for uh, just talking to people, WhatsApp is the most popular in the world, I bet. Yeah, you yeah, know. Probably. yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, it sure is in Asia. You know, I, I, had a, I, I had one of my students yesterday told me that, at least here in B.C., I guess, that you can't get a regular landline anymore. Oh, that's funny. It has to be some sort of cell phone or something like that, which I find, because, you know, we live rurally, so, we, you know, we live in the woods, et cetera, um, I find quite dangerous because, let's say, the right. house goes on fire or someone has a heart attack or something, and, and the, the power goes out, which happens here, you can't, you can't call for help. <laughs> right. So it doesn't make right. any sense to me. But no, you know, no. There must be some. There must be some yeah. reason having to do with money that. <laughs> that right. That they're doing that. Right. Yeah. Uh, I haven't had a landline. Gosh. In um. I don't know. Uh. So maybe maybe I had a landline still in 2011. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, the first thing we do, because we do get power outages, you know, and the, the winds get fiercer, or the snow is heavy, or yeah. something like that, right? And, and so we lose hydro, we, we lose electricity. The very first thing we do is I have a, I have a landline, <laughs> and, and I plug that thing in right away, because you never know what's going to happen, so... Uh, it's yeah. Sort of my yeah. Anyway. Yeah. How are you? How are you yeah. doing? Oh, good. Good. It's um, I got plenty of sleep. It's a nice day, and uh, I called you on time, so all is well. Yeah. So, <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah. I yeah. Had a good day too. I I I um I like to work a lot. I like to do physical work, and I. I was weed whacking about three or four weeks ago and hurt my knee. Um, mm. You know, I, I don't know. <clears throat> there may be a, there may be like <laughs> a warranty date on knees, <laughs> but but so I haven't been able oh, to work. Yeah. In the last two days, I, I managed to get some work done, and I built a bookcase, and I cleared up a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm just I'm as happy as could be. <laughs> Physical labor is great with me. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, I used to do physical work, but where I live, uh, you know, there's people for that. I mean, for everything. And mm -hmm. um, where, you know, it's we're required to have a housekeeper. Uh, any foreigner who lives here uh, is, is or be in a place that provides that. Uh, and... Um, I used to do everything, you right. know, I, everything. I did electrical, plumbing, even if I didn't know. I knew so many people who knew how to do everything. i just call them up. Now I don't yeah. do anything. But now I <laughs> walk and swim and do yoga, you know. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> yeah. you know, I've, I, when, I, when, um, when, my, when our son was young, 
uh, he quite young. Uh, he said to me, mm-hmm. Dad, how come, how come you know how to do plumbing and electricity and carpentry and all of that? And I said, well, because I'm a poet. And he said, <laughs> I don't understand what that means. And I said, it means, it means I could never afford anyone else to do it. So I had to learn all that stuff. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I never wanted to. One thing I've managed to stay away from is, is working on cars. Uh, never wanted to. Was never and in, in, you know in high school when they were easy, I've right. learned to do a few things that were uh, practical to know if something went wrong because they were easy. But um, yeah, good lord, connecting gas lines—that's the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> I had to do it. <laughs> but did they? But did they? You know, when <clears throat> when I was uh, a boy in, um, I guess, uh, middle school, junior high school. Um, we had shop class, and we had they introduced us to all the different trades, and we had to take yeah. it. But I'm really glad that I took it because I learned so much about it. And then this was yeah. in New York City at the time. In New York City at the time, they had uh, high schools for the trades, so you could go to right. school. And av- there was an aviation high school. I mean, you know, they had different high schools that really focused on different trades. It was sort of a wow. fantastic thing. Because there was no wow. idea that everybody should go to college. Certainly, you know, this is, you know, way back when. Not everybody could go to college, even if they were bright. Things were, you know, so expensive. But this was really yeah. a, a sort of great way of matching up kids with uh, some some uh, predilection they might have had or some talent they might have had for the trades. And then, you know, right. there, was the, there was the academic kids. So it was, it, was, it was a kind of very egalitarian approach in some way. And I think, uh, I, I don't know if they still do that. Well, New, New York has always provided so much. And I come from Fort Worth, Texas, and we had um, a technical high school. I remember that's where I went for driver's ed uh, when, when I was 13, incidentally. Oh, really? uh, yeah. Yeah, I was driving at 13. You were. The idea of a 13-year-old driving in New York City is terrifying. <laughs> I had a great experience around that because yeah. when I was 14, uh, I went with my mother and sister up to Rochester for a, a sort of family reunion, you know, yeah. and um, uh, the uh, my Rochester cousins uh, were a very Germanic family with a... Uh, mm, a, a fairly authoritarian father. We all wanted to go to the lake to go water skiing, but there was nobody who could drive. And I said, Uh-oh. I can drive. <laughs> and he said, no, you can't drive. Right. I yeah. said, I have a driver's license. I've been through driver's education. I, I've driven to school. I've, you know, I drive on errands. I drive to see friends. He said, you can't drive here. Wow. I said... I said, I think I can. He said, no, you can't. I said, <laughs> like I said let's call routine. the... I, I said, okay, um, I'll call the police. And if the police say it's legal for me to drive, wow. will you let us go? And he said, yes, of course. So I called the police and I, they answered and I said, I said, hello, do you accept Texas driver's licenses? They said yes. And 
that was it. I said, okay. And Carl said, but let me get there. He said, this kid's 14 years old. They said he's got a Texas driver's license. He can drive here. Wow. And it was, it was a great moment for the family because they'd seen a 14-year-old stand up to their father. Yeah, yeah pretty wild. <laughs> but what, a, what an imagination you had to decide to call the police. I mean, I, I don't know that I ever would have thought of that. I did that at home, too. When we were in high school, we were having a, a discussion about marijuana. Maybe it was after high school. Uh, yeah, it was like right after in the summer. And um, I said, no, it's not addictive. They said, yeah, well, let's call the police, see what they say. So I called <laughs> the police. And we had a discussion there with the police, and they said, no, it's not addictive, but it leads to addictive drugs. Right. That's the party line. Yeah. That's the old line, right. (laughs) So, hey, Peter, (laughs) okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, what are we we going to talk about? (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you a question now. Oh, okay. What what are you up to these days? Oh, this is uh, a great question, because I just got back um, two documents. Um, So the first thing is um, um, my friend Rebecca Nia, uh, she's uh, born in China, she and I translated um, poems from the Tang Dynasty, uh, Taoist women poets. Uh, two, just three poets. Uh, two of them were Taoist priestesses, and one was a commoner and wasn't able to uh, be a priestess. But these are poems from um, from the Tang Dynasty. We, we spent about three years translating mm. these. And uh, Shambhala is going to bring the book out in the fall. It's called Yin Mountain, uh, the Immortal Poetry of Three Taoist Women. And so I'm in galley proofs right now, and um, mm. kind of going over the going over the poems, going over the proofs. And it was really a spectacular project. I mean, one reason is that nobody knows this work. Um, you know, if I say Tang Dynasty China poetry, everyone says, "Oh, Li Bo, Du Fu, uh, Wang Wei." Nobody knows the women. Um, and in fact, very few, um, very few women poets from China are known. Li, Li Qingzhou, um, around the 11th century, she she was fairly well known. Um, she was really known as um, you know one of the greatest lyric poets in China. But they always said that the Chinese always said one of the greatest female lyric poets. <laughs> Because they couldn't, they couldn't just give it to her as she deserved it, which is was as just one of the greatest lyric poets in Chinese literature in the history of Chinese literature. Ah. But so anyway, Rebecca and I started this project a few years ago, and um, it, it's been a fantastic uh, process uh, of our working together. And these poems are really incredible because some of them, um, some of them talk about their spiritual practices as Taoists. As, uh, Taoists. Um, they also were very influenced by goddess culture, which was pretty prevalent in Tang Dynasty China. Again, this is stuff that people just don't know. I mean, I guess the academics know it, but most people you know, don't know it. Um, mm-hmm. And so in the poems, you find, you find references um, um, or foundations for some of the imagery and some of the symbolism and some of the things they're saying that comes from goddess culture, that comes from Taoism. It, they mix them together, and they're really spectacular poets. 
and they were well known in their own day. In fact, uh, they were so good. And so we, you know, we, we put together this book. And what's amazing is that um, so many of the poems are relevant today. And and in fact, um, uh, given the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade the other day, um, I was very moved to publish uh, to uh, not publish to put out there on Facebook, you know, somewhere in in, uh, um, in uh, I guess internet world, um, a very short poem by one of the poets that talks. Let's about, hear it. Oh, I have to find it. Okay, hang on a second. <laughs> Let's see if I can find it. Um, and while I'm looking for it, uh, we wrote a, a head note because this, the symbolism uh, is it's not really well known. Um, and it's really hard to decipher some Chinese um, imagery and symbolism. So, um, oh, here it is right here. So I wrote a head note um, in front of every poem to give so that people would hear um, you know, have a sense of what the poems were about. So I'm going to read you the head note and, and this very short poem. It's only a four-line poem. Uh, in this poem, we see one of the great pains of Yu Xuanzi's life, the inability due to her gender to take the national exam, whose subject was poetry, of all things, whereby she might try to receive the kind of official recognition for her poetic talent that would allow her to advance in the social and economic realms. Such advancement was no simple matter of an egoic desire on her part. Since you came from a commoner background, she was relegated to the position of her husband's lesser wife, in quotes, a low social standing akin to what might be thought of as a sex slave. Besides, her husband's primary and aristocratic wife was known to physically abuse you as well. The brutal hooks to which she refers in, in the poem are both the literal ideographs in the poem's written by the male honorees, whose names were listed publicly on the tablet for all to see, and society's restrictions that you bitterly railed against. And so here's the situation. Here's a great poet, and she's not allowed to take an exam that might help lift her social, um, uh, her, you know, her life as a social being out of this pretty abusive situation simply because she was a woman. E e women know this, right? So here's the poem. Cloud peaks fill my eyes, banishing the light of spring. Clear, brutal hooks form beneath their fingers. I hate that my poems must hide behind my woman's robes. I lift my head in vain and envy the names of their honorees. Mm. Mm. So that's a poem that could be written today. Yeah. Mm. And mm. so there's that kind of thing. And then also there's, uh, there's uh, poems that are deeply sensual because in, um, in both goddess culture and in uh, the Taoism of the time, this, this book's called Yin Mountain. So Yin is the female principle in Taoism. Um, um, women, their actual lives, their bodies, their desires, their sensuality, their sexuality, etc., uh, were considered, considered embodiment of, of the yin principle, of the female principle. And so these poets really maximized the expression of that. And so they were very, very free talking about their love life or the sensual life, etc. And um, 
And at the time, and this is something that really isn't known, um, certain classes of women, and these women were uh, amongst those, had freedoms that we don't associate with uh, so-called ancient China. Uh, they were free to take lovers. They were free to divorce and remarry. They were free to say, I want nothing to do uh, with men. I'm going to join the convent. I'm going to become a Taoist priestess, which was very uh, highly regarded. And so they had a kind of freedom we don't know anything about. And so they write about their spiritual practices, or they write about their love life, or they write poems of longing. Uh, it's a very broad array of poetry. So this is a really great project. So right now, I'm, you know, it's really exciting. You can hear it. Uh, right now, I'm in the middle of looking at what's called the second galley a pass from Shambhala. And then, uh, and then um, also Kaz uh, Tanahashi and I, our new book is um, poems by Saigyo, who was um, kind of itinerant traveling Buddhist monk of the 12th century. We've just translated a little more than 300 of those poems. And so I'm just, I'm just kind of <clears throat> finalizing the translations and, you know, making the making the, the final cut, basically, in terms of uh, refining the language to get it both accurate, but also really something that will, um, you know, really be expressive for English readers. So that's what I've been working on. It's, it's exciting. That, that and weed whacking <laughs> and, book, uh, and bookcases. <laughs> um, so uh, what's the exciting. name? Do you have a name for the, uh, the, for the book? book? Yeah. Yeah, we, we haven't... We haven't um, we haven't um, um, decided on <clears throat> on the title for the Psycho yet. It can go in yeah. so many directions. Psycho, I don't know. Do you have you read any Psycho's Tonka? He, you know, he's one of the great masters of um, of the Japanese um, Tonka or Waka form. Um, Just assume I haven't read anything. Okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> and you'll you'll be right most of the time. Okay. Well. That's why people like me get to wander around all day. <laughs> Somebody has to write their <laughs> poems. <laughs> so, um, um, Saigyo was very interesting. Uh, he, he suddenly, at the age of 22 or 23, something like that, he left behind his uh, life as a palace guard for the emperor, uh, and he became a Buddhist monk. And there's no, there's no actual record that is, makes it clear why he did that. Um, some people say, you know, he just didn't want to be a palace guard anymore. Some people say that he fell in love with the emperor's mistress. You can imagine what a problem that would be. <laughs> and, and she rejected him, and so he hit the road, basically. Um, but he, his poems are, are really terrific because because he traveled all over. And, and in, in fact, it's said that um, that Basho, the great uh, haiku poet, that Basho sort of got the idea for going on the road, you know, traveling along the road and, and writing his poems and writing, um, um, you know, prose uh, adjuncts to the poems to let people, you know, have some clue of what he was doing or what his life was like, that that came from Saigyo hundreds of years before. Saigyo was in the 12th century. And so Saigyo, he, it's, it's so amazing, David, because... Usually we think, oh, he, the hermit poet, right? They're just so completely happy. They're just wandering around, and they just feel so good, and they have no restrictions. And he wrote about loneliness, like Hanshan did in some ways. He wrote about loneliness. He wrote, 
poem after poem after poem about how heartbroken he was at, at this love affair that went bad. Um, he wrote, you know, some poems of, you know, with sort of great respect uh, for his own spiritual practice. And uh, he was a Pure Land Buddhist, so he was very interested in, um, uh, in, um, uh, you know, reaching the Pure Land, basically, you know, in, in going to the West. Um, and in fact, his name, Saigo, means sort of like, it's something like Western traveler or Western Western journeyer, and it's what it is really. Is it's a it's a way of describing his uh, spiritual um, aspiration. Hmm. He took the name of his hmm. of his aspiration. So that's you know that's something that's pretty interesting. But but uh, so you know, Kaz and I have spent a couple of um, a couple of years uh, working on this. We did that. So after you know that he and I worked on the Dogen uh, Treasury of the True Dharma. I, and then we spent ten hey, years wait. on that. Would you would you please uh, state that clearly? You uh, worked on what? That on on uh, on uh, A. Dogen's Shobogenzo, Treasury of the True Dharma, and um, right. And, and you know, so that's uh, you can that's get the, to you can get to that later. Oh, okay. <laughs> so so after we did that, because. Uh, and the way we did it is uh, Kaz would come to my house or I would go down to the States to his house. And, um, and you know, we'd spend a week at a time, a week at a time visiting with each other and then working and translating and, you know, refining, you know, the various texts that had been translated by Ta- Kaz and uh, some other people uh, whom you know. And um, so we had 10 years of that. And at the end of it, we both felt a little bereft. We said, gee, now we... We don't have a reason to visit each other uh, so frequently, so uh, we we have to come up with another project. So Kaz said, "Let's do let's do all of Hanshan, let's do all of Cold Mountain." So I said, "Okay, let's do Hanshan," because <laughs> I had always wanted to do that. So then we spent a few years and we did Hanshan, and and the complete Cold Mountain came out with the with uh, Shambhala. They did a, a really beautiful book. And then we what were back. What was that book called? One. What was that book called? Oh, that's called the Complete Cold Mountain Poems of the Legendary Hermit Hanshan, mm. and that came out in 2018. And um, and then we were back to square one uh, because <laughs> we didn't have a way to visit each other again. So uh, mm. we were in China together. Uh, we had led a little uh, led a little pilgrimage um, sponsored by uh, Upaya Foundation. Um, maybe ten or twelve people came with us, and we went to Hanshan's cave. We went to Tiangtong Monastery, where Dogen studied with Ru Jing in China, uh, his Chinese teacher. And um, and as we were leaving China, we knew that we had the Hanshan work in the bag, so to speak. And Kaz said, "Oh, we need uh, we need another project now." Uh, how about Libo? So I said, okay, let's do Libo. <laughs> but when we got home, we looked at it, we realized there's thousands and thousands of poems. So we uh, we just, we nixed that one, and Kaz said, uh, why don't we do Psycho? I said, great, Psycho is great. So so that's what we're doing now. That's the that's the genesis of that um, of that book. So it's you know it's a lifetime um, it's a lifetime joy. It's really a lifetime treasure to work with. Uh, such a dear, wonderful friend as cause, and um, and to do this work also, because the work really goes mm. straight to really goes straight to the heart for both of us, um, mm. both 
for him as a as a painter and calligrapher and Zen you know Zen scholar and you know for me as a poet and Zen practitioner and teacher, etc. So this is you know it's it's just been uh, almost like a dream treasure uh, for me at least yeah. how I feel about it. Yeah, and I'd add with Kaz, uh, anti-nuclear uh, activist. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, he's always he's always work he's always working on that. He, um, oh, I can't remember what it is now. Um, <clears throat> uh, one of uh, one of his books is I can't remember. I, well, I don't know. I can't remember. It's something recent book is piece. Um, oh, I don't know where it is. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, painting piece. That's it. Yeah, painting piece. Right. And and he actually he's uh, he's just completed a fantastic um, um, project. He um, he just did thirty um, uh, thirty calligraphies, roughly four feet by seven feet of Zen paradoxes. So Zen phrases that are paradoxes. And I haven't seen it yet, but he just, he was excited because he just finished it the other day. And um, it's, you know, feeling pretty happy about it. So he just keeps mm. going, you know. I mean, you know, he's mm. so inspiring. <clears throat> and we have a lot of fun together, so that's the other part. It sounds like mm. all we do is work, but actually, <laughs> we spend a lot of our time laughing together. Mm. Mm. So that's, um, that's, uh, that's, the recent, that's the recent work. Well, you're involved with other things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like what? Well, um, so in, let's see, in 2000, roughly, um, so I, I live on an island in British Columbia. and um, What's the island called? It's called Salt Spring Island. And in 2000, um, and, and it's a really incredible island because there's a lot of painters here, there's a lot of artists here, a lot of artisans here, a lot of writers here. There's a hundred, a hundred published writers on this island, which is amazing. I mean, <laughs> and it's really, it's really a stunning, stunning thing to say. And um, there was uh, uh, Color and Pache started a um, a retreat center on top of one of the mountains here, Mount Tuam. Um, so and so there are Buddhists here, etc. But in in two thousand, um, oh, and in fact, now I'm thinking back to it. So I first came here in nineteen ninety six, and I was walking down the street and in town, and suddenly I saw a drawing by Mayumi. So I, I went I went over and I looked at it, and it was an advertisement for some Buddhist group having some you know kind of meeting or something like that. Um, and I didn't know anything about the island. I had just gotten here, but they had a you know a face that had been drawn by Mayumi, and of course you know I recognized it right away. So I called this person, and I found out oh there's a there's an interest in Buddhism, kind of Buddhist community and various communities and uh, on the island. So, uh, and he didn't know Mayumi, but he I think he lifted a drawing uh, from something she had done. And so we became friends, et cetera. So in 2000, um, I put up a, one piece of paper in town. It said introduction to Zen practice. And uh, just to see if there might be some you know, people who were interested in 
Zen because there was Tibetan here, uh, but no, um, and I think there was Vipassana though I didn't know it at the time. So then, so I put up, I put up a you know little piece of paper. I mean, you know, eight by twelve piece of paper, introduction to Zen practice. Just wondering if anybody might be interested in Zen. I had been here a few years, but it was sort of hiding out. Um, I was I was mm-hmm. writing two books at the time, and so I was very busy writing this book. So, uh, and to my utter utter amazement, forty five people signed up. Um, yeah. which to- totally blew my mind, and there was too many. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, mm-hmm. I had to break the group in two. Um, so that began uh, this sangha, the Salt Springs Zen Circle, uh, which I've been leading since um, you know since 2000. And um, we have a we we meet every week. We have study sessions. We have sessions. We have you know weekly practice. So we have morning practice, etc. We don't have a physical location. That's ours, which I think is great because I don't want to yes. fund. I don't want to spend my life trying to get money. Right, you just you eliminated know. a lot of hassle. Yes. So it's. <laughs> I want to hear the name of the group again. Yeah, it's the Salt Springs Zen Circle, and um, and so and it's within you know it's it's it's. It's within the under under the umbrella under in the aegis of uh, of Suzuki Roshi's lineage, um, because in two and I, I was leading it you know all that time and then in 2010 I think Norman uh, Fisher um, gave me what uh, what's called lay entrustment in the you know in the lineage so sort of like mm. official authorized you know ability to do this within within the uh, lineage. And um, mm. so this has really taken a lot of my attention, and it's been another great gift in my life because the people are so good. They're so serious, so sweet, so warm, um, so eager to practice, so helpful to each other. Um, it, it may be, David, that because we live on an island and we don't have the anonymity that people have in the city, that there's a kind of almost, <clears throat> a kind of almost, um, I want to say, inborn willingness to be close to each other, um, rather than flee from each other. Because we're going to see each other at the post office. We're going to see each other at the at the supermarket. We're going to see each other, you know, walking in the forest or down at the beach or something like that. And so I really feel that it's helped our sangha's life to be a rural. Um, Sangha, you know, here in British mm. Columbia, and um, mm. as opposed to say in the city where you could just, you know, you go out the door, you get in your car and drive away, and it's, you know, you don't have to ever see anybody again. But here, you're going to see people. Your kids are going to go to school together. Um, if you, you know, you need a blood test at the hospital, sure enough, someone from the Sangha is going to be getting their blood too. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. uh, it's quite wonderful. It's really wonderful. So we have a very close knit mm. Sangha. Um, there's about I'm going to guess. I'm going to say maybe a little under 50 members. Many from that very first um, introduction um, are still here, and we practice, and we practice mm. uh, in the way that you know that has come through uh, the lineage, and um, it's really wonderful. What way has Zen come through well, the lineage? Well, you know, so for example, so my teacher way back when was Jock Shou Kuang, Bill Kuang Roshi. And so mm-hmm. 
he he taught us the way Suzuki Roshi had taught him, and then you know I didn't just say okay, you know I, I'm I'm a sort of Zen maven, right? I'm going to just make this thing up. I just basically transferred what I had been taught, which um, you know Jokcho had been taught, you know, to this group here, and um, and over time we've really really developed it, including you know eating oryoki at Sashin um, when we're able to do that. Um, we've spent a lot of time since uh, since uh, Showa Genzo came out, really, really uh, paying attention to Dogen's teachings and um, studying. And that's now expanded because every Sunday, once a week, we have a study session, um, which is which none of which I lead. Uh, they're all led by students, uh, which is really mm. great. Um, mm. Well, I mean, they've heard me talk enough. They don't need to hear me talk. Um, but mm. it gives, this, this gives them a chance to really, you know, get on the hot seat a little bit and have to present something and, uh, and then um, be responsible for hearing, um, you know, for saying what they have to say about it and offering their insights mm-hmm. and also, also responding to each other. Um, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a very strong believer in the virtue of Sangha. I, I really... Mm-hmm. I really, um, I, you know, I think, you know, having hierarchy of a certain kind, uh, maybe at the beginning makes sense, you know, everybody loves their teacher or hates their teacher, but there's the teacher, right? But my idea is that uh, experienced practitioners have an awful lot to offer each other, and they should be given the opportunity to do that. And it mm-hmm. builds... It builds sangha. It builds strong relationships. It it builds um, um, respect for each other. Um, uh, it builds the kind of uh, intimacy in within a Buddhist community um, or a small, you know, again, small rural Buddhist community. But it builds the kind of intimacy that um, that you really want as an expression of this. Zen practice, which has an awful lot to do with intimacy and has an awful lot to do with being um, um, alive and in touch um, with the world as we find it as it comes to us. And so every Sunday morning, uh, someone else is teaching something or leading something, and then there's a wide, you know, wide-ranging discussion and a lot of questions and answers. And I'm there, I guess, for clarifying purposes, but um, but the students are leading it. And mm. Uh, mm. and I and I love that you know Thich Nhat Hanh said and that's that's where I met Kaz I met Kaz at the the first American uh, Buddhist artist retreat at um, at Ojai Foundation um, mm. and Thich Nhat Hanh said at the, at that retreat um, the Buddha of the 21st century is the Sangha and um, you know. It, Conceptually, intellectually, that makes sense. But you know, what is that really about? Because you know, everybody is sort of so focused on the the top dog, you know, the teacher. Um, but my hope, and it's and it's it's come true. My hope was that if the sangha was given the opportunity to present to each other, and this. This, you know, I'm I'm not choosing them. It's they sign up and listen to each other and talk with each other. Then, um, 
whatever whatever the wisdom is or whatever the understanding I'm shy of the word wisdom but whatever the understanding is that the sangha has will rise to the surface and then that's going to be a good thing mm-hmm. and so, and what's what, wrong with the word wisdom well i you know it's too it's too glorified in you know the west is you know we're we're so <laughs> We're so attached to it's got to be. You got to be wise. You got to be the wise person. And my idea is that our ordinary, compassionate way of living and seeing and functioning in the world—that's um, a good thing. And, and I'm I'm a little wary of you know putting a special label on top of it. Of course, I use the word wisdom. I mean, there's no reason for me not to, but. Um, if I was to say to the Sangha, okay, look, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to get together, and every Sunday, um, one of you is going to present your wisdom to everybody else. Everybody would freak out. <laughs> They'd say, oh, no, I have uh-huh. no wisdom. <laughs> so I, I, you know, in, in that context, I stay away from it. Yeah. yeah. We're just talking yeah. to each other, basically. And when they get nervous, David, what I say to them is, look, I, you know, I know you're a little nervous. But let me say this. I tried to get the important people to come. I, I wrote to all the important people. None of them are available, so it's just going to be us. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they laugh because, you know, of course, their anxiety performance has been nailed. <laughs> uh, but then we have a really great conversation, you know, and it, it, it helps. It does. It helps. So that is... You know, I've spent a lot of energy on that, and I'm, and I'm really, really glad for that. All right. Well, you study, and you do the ceremonial eating uh, called Oriyoki. Right. What else right. do you do? Well, you know, we practice all that. I mean, we sit, we chant, when? and we have how, service. What, what, how often does your group meet? So we, well, COVID has sort of changed things, but... We we meet uh, Monday mornings, Wednesday evenings, Friday mornings, Sunday mornings. Um, oh, that's a lot. That's yeah. A, most groups meet once a week. Yeah. I mean the yeah. small groups, right? Yeah. Wow. All right. And and you know when we when we were able to be together, and you know as I said, COVID has really changed things. Um, you know, I would say say that like on our Wednesday evening sittings, which was the sort of big thing. Um, you know, maybe 20 people would show up, something like mm-hmm. that. And uh, that was mm-hmm. pretty good. I mean... What's the, what's the schedule? Um, you, you mean, like, say, for a Wednesday evening? So we'd have two yeah. sits. We'd, have two sits. We'd, we'd, we'd sit Zazen, we'd do Kinhen, we'd sit Zazen, we'd chant Heart Sutra, we'd chant the Enmei Juku Kanongyo, we'd chant the um, Sandokai, and then uh, then... Maybe I'd give a short talk, fifteen or twenty minute talk, and we'd go home. So it's a couple hours. Uh, what what time do you meet? Uh, seven uh, seven fifteen. And how long are the zazen periods? Yeah, so they about half an hour. And and, and keening ten and minutes. And ten minutes, yeah. 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 All right. And you know, I think you know we've got to squeeze it in because we're renting. <laughs> we're renting the place, right? So <laughs> we, uh. we, it's like it's like uh, putting your money in the parking meter. You know, you put your money in the parking meter and you sit down. <laughs> oh, you mean you rent it by the hour? 
Yeah, we rent it by. So we yeah we have to, we rent it by the hour. That's how we've done it for twenty years. Um, but we lost we lost our place because the person who was renting it to us and it was a wonderful place. Um, when COVID came, he sort of closed up shop. But just this week, I'm I'm really happy about this. I I approached the Anglican Church on the island here, and they have a really beautiful. I guess room um, that's opposite the the chapel where you know where the, they hold their services, um, and it's a big empty room. It's really quite beautiful. It overlooks overlooks the harbor here on the island, and um, we just made an arrangement. So we are moving. We've got a new place. We have a new. Yeah. Room. It'll be stable. Yeah. We can afford it, which is a big thing. Yeah. And um, and starting in September, that's where we'll be meeting. So I'm really thrilled huh. about it. Very good, very good, yeah, very good. So, it's good. so um, how, how how did you uh, get into this Zen stuff? Uh, uh, when did you <laughs> when did you first get some inkling that well, there was something to understand or something different or or you didn't understand everything or well, you know? Yeah. Well, I, it's it's a sort of I, I've told the story before, but I'll tell it to you. When I was thirteen. There was a comedian named Shelley Berman. I don't know. Do you remember? Oh yeah. Him? Oh okay. sure. So Shelley Berman had these. Shelley Berman said the plural for see now. He said Kleenex is like a plural. What's the singular? <laughs> he said I'm going to call them Kleenexes. <laughs> well, In the, okay, one Kleenexy. That's, that's a good. <laughs> that's a good segue because he was very tuned into language. And he had a very mm -hmm. good delivery. And so I, I was 13 years old. I bought one of his albums in 99 cents at the local store or something like that. I read it in, and I put it on, and he's doing his routine to a live audience. And he says to the audience, we know the sound of two hands clapping, but what is the sound of one hand clapping? And the audience bursts out laughing. And I started laughing. Uh -huh. But I didn't know why I was <laughs> laughing. <laughs> I just thought, mm -hmm. that's ridiculous. What do you mean? What's the sound of one hand clapping? That's, that's wild. That's crazy, right? But I never thought about it. In mm -hmm. 1967, I moved to San Francisco from New York. And I was living... Uh, uh, how old were you? I was 21. And... Mm -hmm. And my wife and I moved to uh, to San Francisco. And uh, just coincidentally, this is a wild thing, but I, I won't go into it too far. But upstairs from us was um, a woman and a young man. Um, and they were kind of interested in, you know, spirituality, Buddhism, and stuff like that. And uh, he was interested in Tibetan Buddhism. And I'm going to make a really long story short. It was Sam Burkholz and Hazel of Silver who are the founders of Shambhala Press. Right. They, they were living upstairs. <laughs> we were living downstairs. And so, uh, you know, you re probably remember what it was like in San Francisco in the 60s. That, you know, everything was being tried out, and there was a lot of talk about spirituality and spiritual practice. So I went to the St. Vincent de Paul um, Salvation Army store, which was right near where I was living, and there was a book there called... Um, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, which, of course, you know, Paul Reps' uh, book. Right. And 
it just caught my eye. I don't know why it caught my eye, but I brought it home, and I opened it up, and there was the Shelley Berman joke. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, I know what you mean now. Yes, right. of course. It was the Shelley Berman joke. It was, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And I thought, yeah. wow, wait a minute. I, I remember this from when I was 13, so I started reading the book. And what I found, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what I found was that there was one story after another that I did not understand at all, but they all made me laugh. And uh, I thought, this is wild. I, I, don't, I had no idea what this was, none. But I kept reading because, I mean, I was a, you know, I was a literary kid and I, you know, young man. I, I was writing, of course, and um, um, so I was interested in these stories. None of them made any sense to me. You can imagine, right? I had no background in this. I didn't know anything about Zen. I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I, didn't, I knew nothing. But I kept reading the book. And because it was San Francisco at the time, people were introducing lots of different, you know, new things. Or they were new to us. I mean, we didn't know they were thousands of years old. <laughs> but <laughs> and one of them, one of them was meditation. And mm -hmm. um, and so Sam was very interested in um, in Tibetan. And I suddenly was interested in this Zen stuff, whatever that was going to be. I didn't know, but simply because of the Paul Reps book. And, and, uh, and so I learned to sit and, um, it, this is a, also a, a, a bit of a strange <laughs> coincidence. I had been told there was a real Zen master in San Francisco, um, somebody that I absolutely had to go see. Um, and it was Suzuki, but because I was 21 and very anti-institutional in 1967, as you can imagine. You remember what was going on then. Um, I thought, I, I don't want to go see some guy, um, you know. So I actually never went to meet him. Mm. Of course, I look back at that as, what a boy, talk about mistakes that a young person can make. But maybe not. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe you would have gone and been there for a while a lot of people just pass through quickly right. you know once a week a month a year right. and you would have uh you know and you you don't have to meet him um anyway no no, no uh, you know right. that, that's the way i feel yeah well it is you know it's how i feel also because um uh i got introduced to a lot of different stuff but what stuck was zen uh, you know, I remember going to see Muktananda, and I went to see, you know, uh, somebody, Tulka Rinpoche. And I, I mean, that's what was going on in San Francisco for some of us, you know, at that time. Um, but what really stayed with me was this something about the Zen stuff that I don't understand, but I, it feels like it's mine. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I didn't know how to say, and I, I still don't know how to say it any better than that. It, it, it was not something that I intellectually agreed with, because I didn't even know what it was talking about. But possibly because um, just the way my mind works, I suppose. Um, you know, I wander around a lot. I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm pretty uh, non-definitive in a lot of ways. Um, 
it it just kept staying with me little by little it kept staying with me and then um and i began to practice i read some other books i read um you know of course i read kaplow's three pillars of zen and you know i was reading these books etc but but there was something about zen practice that i liked um and i and nobody taught me i i you know i learned how to sit from reading some book or something like that and that was good enough for me it was uh, it was a good start and I didn't have the pressure of, of having to do anything right because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so, mm. so whatever I did was right. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's so, what am I saying there is that there's a way in which I, I, I think I was led there by uh, my intuition in some way, and I trusted it because that's what I relied on to write poetry. So trusting not knowing and trusting my intuition um, seemed natural to me um, mm. as, a, as a poet. And, and the same thing, uh, same thing when it came to Zen practice. In, um, in the early 70s, around 70, maybe 69 or 70, um, Diane DePrima and I became friends. And you know Diane. Um, mm-hmm. And she, she and I were, we, just, we really loved each other a lot. We were great friends. And, um, and uh, she, um, she sort of made sure that I was sticking with my practice. Uh, she thought it was good for me. And, you know, she had practice with Suzuki Roshi, um, et cetera. Yeah. She was, then, she was then a student of Trungpa's um, after that. Um, but um, no, she 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 was still a student of Suzuki's too. I yes. mean, Di- yeah. Diane would come to Tatsuhara uh, in the summer with um, her kids and right. practice there, and they'd stay for I don't know a month or right something like yeah. that or longer. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, well, and she was yeah, and she was so you know this was a good part of our relationship because she she knew that I loved this strange thing and she loved this strange thing and she had been with Suzuki Rishi and she and I were very close um, and so it was part of our relationship and it turns out that so then I just began practicing on my own for a long time David Uh, I didn't join anything I didn't go to anywhere you know I would go listen to lectures etc but um, I, I, I I had no need I think to to be part of something, to join something. Um, and it may be, I've thought about this over the years, it, it may be that I was scared to join something uh, because mm-hmm. somebody would be watching me, you know, and um, I didn't want anybody mm-hmm. watching me. You know, so that, that may have been part of it. But after about 10-plus years or so of, um, of sitting, uh, well, uh, you know, Anyway, Diane and I went to, to Naropa together, and, um, and she said, oh, I want you to come hear a lecture uh, by an old friend of mine, and it was Jock Shaw Kwong, it was Bill Kwong. And so uh, he came in, and, you know, he kind of looked around the room, shyly went, I just noticed him, he was in his robes, you know, he, he walked up to the stage and he gave a talk, and it was a wonderful talk. And uh, I really liked it, and then, um, then he was gone, just you know, in a flash. So he, he talked maybe for 20 minutes, something like that. But it was a good talk. It really caught my attention. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
and uh, and one of the thing, one of the things he said in the talk, which I loved, was he talked about trying to like trying to get up in, at, at four in the morning to to go sit to go meditate, and it was dark, and he didn't want to turn the light on because Laura, you know, his wife was there, he didn't want to wake her up, so he kind of stumbled around in the dark trying to find his socks and put his socks on, and you know, it's a very homey talk, right? And then uh, he would stumble, you know, try not to fall on his shoes and get to the to the bedroom door to go outside to go get down, you know, get to a page, uh, get to a, um, to the Zen center, and he sort of acted out looking looking for where the where the doorknob was on the door frame, and so like moving his hands down the door looking for the door doorknob, and I, I what really caught me is he said. Uh, if you want to go through the door, it's good to know where the doorknob is. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that's right. <laughs> if you want to go through the door, it's good to know where the doorknob is. But I really heard it in that, you know, in that wonderful symbolic way. Um, <clears throat> um, that that kind of can grab you. So about five years after that. Um, I was just living my life. Everything was great. Everything was going wonderful. But I felt this big hole in the middle of me. Um, and I had I had been sitting with... Uh, I was down in L.A. at the time. I was been sitting with, uh, you know, Maizumi um, uh, Roshi. And, um, and, you know, by then I had been, you know, really kind of practicing uh, with other people somewhat. But I couldn't understand what that hole was, but it really didn't feel good. Um, when I looked at my life, it couldn't have been better. I was writing, I was publishing, I was translating, etc. My daughter was thriving, everything was going great. Um, so I called Diane. And uh, I said, hey, Diane, uh, something's not right, something wrong here. Everything's going well, I feel good, you know, got food on the table, etc. But there's a big hole in the middle of me. And she said, uh, she said, oh, honey, it's time for you to take refuge. Mm. And I, I said, what do you mean? She said, it's time for you to take your refuge vows. It's time for you to take your precepts. It was just, you know, if you know Diane, you know, you know, she just would say things, boom, it's done, right? And when she said that, I burst into tears. Mm. I just, I did. I just started to cry. Because I knew she was right. So I said to her, do you remember that monk we saw when we were at Naropa together? She said, oh, you mean Bill? I said, yeah. She said, yeah. I said, um, I want to talk to him. I want to take refuge with him. And she said, well, what about the people down in L.A.? I said, no, there's something there. There's something there. I want to follow that. And um, and so then, you know, went from there. So that's sort of, I'm sorry for taking so long, but that's... that's no, that's good. Take all the time you want. You know, that's that's sort of how it, it grew inside of me. Um, from, you know, a comedian's, you know, a, a borscht belt Jewish comedian's joke to, mm -hmm. you know, to Zen flesh, Zen bones. And Tell him I'm going to see Bill. 
That was uh, interesting. I, I, so I wrote a postcard. You know, by then I was a pretty, um, I don't know what I was. Um, I had some, I had some juice inside of me by then. <laughs> and, and, um, so I wrote a, I wrote a postcard to, to Genjoji and I said, um, you know, I'm a friend of Diane's, et cetera. I, I saw you give a talk like that. I'd like to come talk with you if, if you're willing to do that. Um, and, um, you know, please respond. Uh, and then I, for some reason at the bottom of that postcard, I wrote, uh, if, if you never get this postcard, I'll take that as your reply. Now, I don't know why I wrote that, but mm. I think I was, I think I was throwing something out into the world for myself. Like maybe this won't work, but I got, mm-hmm. I got, I got a I got a reply back quickly. Laura wrote that to me, um, and she said, "Here's your appointment. Come, etc." Okay, so I did. I I drove from L.A. up to um, to Genjoji, the Sonoma Mountain, and um, I went and you know had my appointment with him, and I told him, you know, I saw you give a talk in Europa, etc. You know, you talked about the doorknob and finding your socks and all of that stuff, and I I wonder if you would be willing to have me be your student um, because I think um, I think and Diane <laughs> thinks <laughs> that it's time for me to take a different kind of step and he said no I no, I, it's too far you live too far away it's not going to work um, why don't you stay with my zoomy and I said well I you know and I, I so I, I I tried to talk about it with him a little more and um, and he said, no. He said, no, I, I don't want to do that. You know, it's too far. It's too much of a commitment. And I'll never see you. You won't be here, et cetera. Um, you have a, a daughter to raise. You're in L.A. And I said, yeah, I know, but I really feel like there was something there when I saw you. And I said, in fact, you know, when you got on the stage, just coincidentally, and I said, I'm not talking symbolically now, but just I noticed that when you sat down, I sat down. And he said, oh, is that right? <laughs> now, I just meant that physically, you know, but he may have heard it symbolically. But he said, well, that's nice that we got to sit together, but I don't think it's going to work out. So something, David, something inside of me jumped up, and, and I said to him, you know, respectfully, it's too late. And he said, what do you mean it's too late? I said, well, you're already my teacher. And he said, uh, well, since that's the case, do you have any questions? <laughs> now, isn't that a great conversation? <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah, well, can you teach me to bow? I don't know how to, I don't know how to bow. I'd like to, I'd like to learn. And he said, okay. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He told me how to do a prostration bow. Yeah. And then, um, then our interview was over, and I had a teacher, and uh, it, I, I think it was good. Did you stay in L.A.? I stayed in L.A. and I drove up to Genjoji, you know, back and forth, and you know, twenty. I, I had a twenty-year relationship with. Hello. Hey there, we got disconnected. Yeah, sorry.
sorry. I'm not sure what happened there. Oh, well, that happens. Uh, Skype will just hang oh. up sometimes. Oh, I see. Uh, and um, uh, so uh, you had a 20-year relationship yeah, with yes. him. Was so that was, entirely was, with you in L.A.? Yeah, yeah. So I was up and down, up and down, up and down. Uh, I, w- I was shoe so for him twice. Yeah, how often did you go there? I don't. I actually can't remember. Um, what was I'm it? Once a month? Months, probably. I'm going to say every gonna, few I'm, months. I'm going to say guess every few months. Uh, sometimes, yeah, it, sometimes yeah. it may have been longer than that. You know, because I was raising a, a daughter also down south, and I'm. Yeah, when you say you were raising a daughter, uh, did you have a mate? Uh, well, her her mom and I um, split up at. Um, when she was, I think, four or five, so that was 1975, um, and um, and then. When did you and her mother get together? Oh, in in '64. Oh, so she, you, and and did you get married? Uh, yeah, we got married in '66, and uh, and so you got married, and she came with you. Yeah. To San Francisco. Yes. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, that and then, ha- now that you're saying that, that that San Francisco scene was wild. I, several friends of mine joined the Hare Krishna people. They they came from the East Coast and they stayed in my place in San Francisco. And the next thing, I told them, "Hey, there's a great, there's a like, there's a lot of food and some really cute girls you could meet, you know, over at the right. at this Hare Krishna place, and you can dance and it's fun." And two of my friends became. Uh, became Krishna people. And one of them, I have just found a few years ago, he's one of the Krishna teachers in, um, in uh, I guess he's in Australia now. Something. He stayed with mm. it. Isn't that wild? He stayed with it. Mm. But that's yeah. what I mean yeah. by, you know, everything was, you know, in San Francisco in the 60s, uh, everything was being tried. <laughs> so right. I, I became like, the, I became like the, the safe house for the Hare Krishna people. <laughs> yeah, well, they 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 put out a lot of good food in the Panhandle. Boy, did on, they ever! Um, yeah, I can't remember what days. Was it just Sunday, or was it every day, or no, probably once a week? I don't know, but you know, I I was a young guy, and I would go there and get the food, and you know, we would chant Hare Krishna, and we'd jump up and down and dance, and there were cute girls there and cute guys there, and everybody yeah everybody was having a great yeah. time in Golden Gate Park. <laughs> Right, right, right. Um, now, I, I want to go back. Uh, where Where do you come from in New York? Uh, I grew up in the Bronx, in in New York City. Ah, yeah. Ah, my my first wife, who lives in uh, uh, Spokane, uh, Dayu Goldschlag, who has a little zing group there, came from the Pelham Parkway area oh. of the Bronx. Yeah, so she was. Just a few miles from where I, uh, where I was, I used to, I used to, uh, um, I used to go up to play basketball at this uh, youth house, community youth center in Pelham, in 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 Pelham Parkway or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, well, that's interesting. And uh, so, uh, what what was the uh, what was your uh, religious uh, background? Well, I was raised Jewish. And um, and it meant a lot. But there's a lot of people who were raised in atheist Jewish homes. Yeah, but I wasn't one of those. Yeah, I um 
I I wanted to be a rabbi when I was eight. Whoa! And I asked my I asked my parents to to send me to to be educated. And um, I don't know my, how much time you have, David. But there's a whole story that goes along with that. But but um, uh, I took it seriously. I I really liked it, and um, I ran into a problem. Um, um, when I was 11, I, I, I really thought about it, and I told the rabbi that I didn't believe in the chosen people. And uh, he lost his mind. He went, he went completely <laughs> And he came, run, he came running at me from the front of the room, yelling. Uh, it, I mean, just, it was, it was amazing. It was like a bull charging at me. I, I, I wasn't being a wise guy. I really, I really had thought about it. And, um, and he was, you know, of course, this is, I didn't know, I didn't understand this, but, you know, this is um, 11 years after the Holocaust, right? And here's this little smartass in his eyes saying he didn't believe in the, in the chosen mm-hmm. people. And, but he, did, he was yelling at me about it. And, and how could you say that? And what do you mean? And, you know, all that. And I just said, uh, you know, I, it doesn't make any sense to me that, if God created everybody, then he wouldn't choose. That's right. Well and, said. And he and he he went crazy. Now there is a teaching that he could have given me, but he couldn't. He didn't. He, he didn't have it in him. He just. He just. I think he was afraid that I was like the virus. I was going to infect everybody with this. What teaching could he have given you? Well, you know, the chosen people often sounds like we're the best, mm-hmm. uh, right? You know, the Jews are the chosen people, so we're better than everybody. But actually, part of the teaching that goes along with the chosen people is that is that they had accepted monotheism. They had accepted one God. And so in that way, um, they were chosen and had chosen mm-hmm. at the same time. So there was some kind of symbiosis there. Um but uh, he didn't have it in him at, in that moment, so he kicked me out of he, he kicked me out of school. <laughs> and, um, and, um, That's great. Yeah, he just, <laughs> yeah, he kicked me out, and um, and told me never come back. And um, and that night the phone rang, and my mother answered it, and I heard her say, "Yes, Rabbi." So yeah, yeah, uh, he wanted to talk to my father. So my father. Um, got on the phone and talked to him, kind of hushed tones, etc. And what was going on was, you know, the rabbi was explaining to him that I couldn't come back, that I was no longer welcome in the synagogue, yeah. in, in, the, in the school, or anything. I was no longer welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so my father got off the phone, and I said to him, what was that? You know, I was kind of scared. And um, he said, well, that was the rabbi, and I understand that you, uh, that you told the rabbi that... Uh, you didn't believe in the chosen people. And I said, that's true. I don't. And I said, uh, what did the rabbi say? He said, well, he said that because you said that, you can't come back. You're, 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 you've been, you know, basically, uh, what, what's the word? Not suspended, but, you know, kicked out. You've yeah. been kicked out. And I said, well, what did you say? And he said, well, I, I told the rabbi that we taught our boys to think for themselves, and I thought you were doing a good job. <laughs> good for him. 
<laughs> expelled. You were expelled. And, That's and, the word. Expelled, right? I was expelled, right? <laughs> and but then my father. Good. Good. For thinking. You know, for thinking. So then, then comes this other thing, David. That's really interesting. This is interesting to me because it does have to do with with the sangha. Um, they sent me to a private tutor, who was a woman, who taught out of her apartment. In, in she lived in a basement with her daughter, um, uh, in the Bronx, and I would go study with her. Her name was Mrs. Pleader, and she taught me how to pray. She taught me my you know Jewish history. She taught me everything. She taught me the holiest prayers. But this is the Bronx. And she taught it to me with me sitting at the dining table, which was a formica table, while she cooked dinner. So she'd be stirring the soup or cooking the food and tasting it and saying these holy prayers. And she's spitting the food out as she, you know, the food is coming out of her mouth, right? And I'm this little 11 year old boy, and then 12, and then 13, you know, and I'm studying with mm. her. And what, I, what I'm seeing is that she's not making any distinction between the holy prayers that she's teaching me, and how to pray, it's called davening, how to pray and what the prayers are, um, and cooking dinner, and getting things mm -hmm. together. And that, that meant something mm. to me. That meant something to me. I, I was no longer, I was no longer, um, um, at the behest of the of the rabbi, I was being taught by a woman, who, and she was orthodox. I was being taught by an orthodox woman, and by orthodox, I should tell you this also. Um, part of what fascinated me as I became an adolescent was that on the doorknob in the other room, while she was teaching me this stuff, there were two items. One was a blonde wig with a ponytail. That was her daughter's wig because as Orthodox women, they, she shaved her hair, they shaved her head. And the other was her brassiere. And at 11, it didn't mean anything to me. But 12, moving towards 13, I started becoming pretty interested in this. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's a way in which... Um, there's a way in which that whole thing got mixed together for me. You know, my, my early adolescence, this Orthodox woman, her daughter, I still remember her name. I used to call her the beautiful Estelle. <laughs> but, um, the, the whole thing got mixed together, that spiritual life, that my spiritual life, and I cared about it. I, you know, I was not an atheistic Jew. Um, that my, that's my spiritual life and being being in the house, being in the home with a woman who was my teacher, who was cooking dinner and telling me all the stories and teaching me the, you know, the Torah and teaching me the Bible and all of that stuff, um, it got all mixed together. Mm. So that, so that when I, so now I'm going to jump back, right? When I said that I had confidence in our Sangha to teach each other, to, to be the Buddha, you know, of the 21st century, to share their, their knowledge, their understanding, their wisdom. Um, what I came to realize a few years ago, David, is that I think it was rooted in, that, in those experiences. Mm -hmm. That I didn't, have the, I didn't have the idea of, like, 
the, the great charismatic golden teacher who sits on top of the throne, that it, it looked to me like spiritual practice, a spiritual life is something that ordinary people do in their houses. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, householders. And, um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, I'm a householder teacher. They say lay, but I don't like the word lay because it has very negative It does? Um, oh, yeah. If you look it up in the dictionary, you know what a lay mm. person is? It's a non-professional. It's somebody who um, is, n- it's defined as a non-professional and also not a priest. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you what it is. It tells you what, it tells mm-hmm. you what it's not. It doesn't tell you what it is. So that's like if you said to me, um, well, Peter, what are you? And I say, well, I'm not a refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you don't know that much about uh-huh. me now, do you? But if, if you look at, you look, look it up when you have a chance. No, I, I'm taking your word for it. <laughs> yeah, it tells you what you're not. You're not a priest, and you're, and you're not a professional. Yeah. That doesn't sound so good, right? So I prefer the word household, mm. because that is what I am. I'm a householder. Well, what if somebody isn't a priest, practices, and doesn't hold a house? <laughs> and doesn't, well, then they're not a householder either. You know, it's, it's very interesting, because... You know, there is a um, Chinese word, jusher, it's pronounced sort of, you know, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm not saying it, it the way a Chinese person would say it, but jusher. Jusher means householder. Now, do you know, you know, of course, Vimala yeah. Kirti. Vimala Kirti's name is, how he was known is Householder Vimala Kirti. Mm-hmm. And the poet Wang Wei in the Tang, uh, Tang Dynasty his name was Householder Wang hmm. Wei. So there's actually, there's actually within our Buddhist tradition, there is a tradition of people taking on the name Householder. Hmm. And, and, and it's honorable. It's not a big deal, you know. It's just, okay, they're a householder. Um, and maybe, maybe that also means not a priest. But it's a way of saying, this is what I am. Hmm. And you know, um, you know, and, and I know, that most Zen practitioners in the West are householders, even the ones who are That's ordained. Right. They have, they have, um, they have husbands, they have wives, they have children, they have mortgages, they have jobs, they have pensions, <laughs> they drive cars. There's, there's very, very few, if any, monastics. That's a different category. You know what I tell people here in Bali? I'd say, well... Yeah. You know, uh, what you know here is uh, the Buddhism from Southeast Asia, which is like very old original Buddhism. And right. then the, the bhikshu, the, the monks, they're, they're celibate, they right. don't have homes, etc. I said that there's a lot of tradition in the tradition I've been involved in. They're more like Hindu priests. <laughs> they get married, right. they right. have homes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, right. I mean, here in yeah. Bali, anyway, which is a very different type of Hinduism, uh, Hindu priests yes. are, yeah, like that. And Suzuki, incidentally, Suzuki emphasized this. Uh, in, yeah. um, and there was one particular lecture he gave. 
maybe on uh, around November 19th, 1969, moving into the Page Street yeah. building. I don't think it was particularly well recorded, right. but he talked about how we are neither lay nor priests. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that was included in that was included in Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, and it was a, it's a very important passage. You know, we're not quite this, and we're not. Quite yeah, this. right. And that, that's very important. It's very important because it's it's for me. This is just my own feeling about it, but. It's a way of saying, don't, don't spend too much time thinking about your labels. Don't spend too much time thinking about what kind of ordination you did or anything like that. You know, we are a kind of amalgam. You are a kind of amalgam, right? Uh, you're Westerners. Uh, Zen has just arrived here, um, and it's going to be different yeah. here. And this amalgamation... This amalgamation is what it's going to be. So cultivate that, yeah. right? Um, and and I think that that was a great gift to Western uh, to yeah. yeah. you know, to do that. You know, when, when, when Bernie Glassman uh, received uh, Inca or whatever, you know, from, uh, from Mayazumi, Mayazumi said to him, I'm going to stay away for, from you for about a year now. And you just go ahead, and you make this the way you think it should be. So that's another, you know, Japanese teacher, yeah. one of our, you know, contemporary yeah. ancestors, sort of trusting, trusting Western Zen people who they could trust to, to, to figure this thing out, figure yeah. out how to do it. And um, and I think that's I think it's fabulous, and you know, just in in my life. Um, when I was expelled <laughs> from school, when I was expelled and thrown into the apartment of this Orthodox woman who was teaching me incredibly deep, wonderful, beautiful stuff from the Jewish tradition while cooking, while the beautiful Estella had her wig and her brassiere on the doorknob. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it all goes together mm -hmm. in my mind, David. It, it it all mixes together. This is, I I don't know where this is going to be a hundred years from now, but I know that that householder practitioners are very sincere practitioners, mm -hmm. and um, and and well, I mean I can't talk for everyone, right? But you know, right. In general, I'm. Um, they're the ones. Right. I have a question. The the woman who was yeah. teaching you. Uh, since she was orthodox, yeah. she shaved her head. Did she wear a, a wig while you yeah. were there? Yeah. 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 Mm. Oh yeah, I never saw her. I never saw her. Um, her mm. bald head. No. I. You know. I don't know why. I. You know. I. It may have been immodest. I. I wouldn't know. I mean, I was eleven when they. Yeah. Um, because even though they kicked me out. Um, I was serious. I wanted to learn. Yeah, that was not a, a very good rabbi who did that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. You know what? I I had I had my suspicions about him, and I it, it you know it, you know how children are. Um, you know they they see the inconsistency. It's why you know almost every parent at one point or another has been called a hypocrite by their child. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
for the for the simplest thing. <laughs> but what I what what I used to uh, what I noticed uh, when I would go to to synagogue to uh, to shul um, is that during his um, I guess sermons, his lectures, whatever they were, this rabbi used to lift up his yarmulke and smooth his hair back and then put his yarmulke back on. And I thought he was vain. Mm. Now, you know, and this is, you know, so I started there when I was eight years old. So this is eight, nine, ten, eleven, like that, right? But I thought it was strange, and it, it made me wonder, because I knew that, you know, you're supposed to have your head covered in that tradition. It made me wonder if in the few seconds that he lifted his yarmulke from his head, if in those seconds... He was not holy. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because he didn't lift it. It's not like it fell off or something. He would lift it to smooth back his hair. Mm. And I noticed that in, in, the way, in the way that only a child would notice right. something like that, right? Um, um, but it made me question his um, sincerity mm. in a way. Now he may have been a very sincere person. I'm sure he was. He was. I mean, you know, you don't you don't become a rabbi just sort of for no reason. But um, but I did have a question yeah. about him. And then, of course, when I when I told him I didn't believe in the chosen people, my <laughs> suspicions were confirmed. Right. Right. Well, he. Because <laughs> he uh, lost his I'm mind. I'm <laughs> certain that since then he evolved wonderfully. Um, I'm going to go back. I'm, I'm going to go back to your daughter. Uh, it, you 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 oh, married yeah. in God like sixty four you say or something very young oh you 66. married in, yeah, in sixty four and you married in sixty six you and I yeah. are the same age what month are you born right I'm September. oh I'm older I'm February yeah you're older than I am I I respect yes. my elders uh, <laughs> and um, uh, so um, yeah you married really young. Uh, and uh, yeah. 21, uh, and uh, or even before at 20, probably. Uh, right. And um, yep. uh, you came to the West, and then you you, uh, you split up at some point, and you kept the daughter. What? Well, tell me about this. Yeah. Well, um, at the time, let's see. I have to go back to it. Um. So the first two years of our daughter's life, um, I was working and uh, and my wife stayed home. And then after two years, she was going to work and then I was going to stay home. And it was during that time that um, <clears throat> that things started to fall apart. And part of what was going on is that she really loved working. And... It was it was a time that uh, that women were being told, well, yeah, working is a good thing, and you have a right to work, and you have a right to fulfill that part of yourself, and um, staying home and being a mom isn't necessarily, you know, right for everybody, and uh, you know you you should make your choices, and she uh, was a good person, and she started to recognize that she actually loved working. I uh, 
had a two-year-old. There were no other men raising children. And I loved it. I, I completely mm. loved it. Um, I loved getting I loved getting up in the morning. I loved, uh, you know, before my daughter would, you know, get up and around. You know, I loved writing. I loved reading. Uh, and I spent my time with her. And we, we had her in a day, uh, I guess it was called preschool, day school, or daycare or something like that. I don't know what it was called. But uh, I really enjoyed being with her. And I really enjoyed taking care of her. I enjoyed cooking for her. I enjoyed talking with her. I enjoyed um, riding my bicycle down to the beach with her on the back. Um, I really loved being with her. Um, in the meanwhile, the marriage was falling apart because my wife was not getting home. She was staying at work later and later and later, and she was getting a lot of kudos. She must have been very good at what she did. And, um, and we were in that time period you'll remember it right you you remember this the early 70s now yeah <clears throat> when things were shifting when when so-called gender roles were shifting and i was one of the few men who were raising you know they called house husband but i didn't feel like a house husband i was her father and i was raising my daughter and so when our marriage fell apart um well what's going to happen with our daughter and I said to um, her mom, to my wife, um, uh, you know, you, you know that I can't have this child and not raise her. You, you know that about me, don't you? And she said, yes, I do know that about you. And so I said, well, I, uh, I, I want to raise her and, and you can see her on the weekends if you want. And she said that would suit me. And so it was just. And that. did that work out? Uh, it was hard. Uh, it worked out. Yeah, it worked out. Uh, it worked out. I mean, my daughter, she's fifty. How old is she now? Fifty-one this year. Um, we didn't uh, talk each other down, and she said that, you know, uh, you know. Shortly afterwards, you know, everyone was getting divorced, <laughs> right? Um, but she said that that. Um, because her mom and I never talked bad about each other, she didn't go through the kind of terrible loyalty that problem that oh. friends went through. Oh, well, that doesn't always happen. Gee, it didn't happen in in my brain. Didn't always happen. No. Huh? How so? How, how so? Well, um. Uh, well, there might have been minor things, uh, but uh, I, I was, you know, I had pretty good relationships with my exes. I, I'm in my fourth marriage now. Uh -huh. and, and my wife is yeah. in her fourth well, marriage. Yeah, I, I'm in my last marriage. <laughs> I'm in my third. No, it doesn't. But, you know, so she, but, you know, she said that. And so it worked out. Um, by and large, um, I mean, what happened really, it was really simple. We, we were together so young that as we grew older into our later 20s and et cetera, you know, I was, I was living the life I wanted to live as, you know, as a poet and, um, you know, Zen practitioner, et cetera. And, and, and um, you know, my wife at the time was living her life working. 
um, and enjoying it and getting a lot of kudos for, you know, how good she was and her intelligence and, and all of that. So we were both, you know, in a way, we had just grown apart. Yeah, sure. So there wasn't any, there was nothing bad to say about each other. I was living my life and she was living her life. Yeah. So that was, you know, that was pretty easy. Um but it stayed that way. And then I, I remember when, when my daughter was 16, um, I had another relationship at that time. I was living with someone and, and in fact, got married again. Um, um, and, um, and her mom was uh, with another guy. And uh, I can't, I think they got, I think they were married by then. I don't remember. But when my daughter was 16, I said to her, you know, um, I've never been a girl, you know, <laughs> I don't, there's a lot I don't know. And maybe you would like to, you know, maybe you would like to stay with mom. And, um, because she was a girl, she knows, you know, all kinds of stuff that you are experiencing. And I know nothing about it except from the outside. And she said, no, I, I, I want to stay here. So that was, uh, no, it was a real heartfelt hmm. conversation. Hmm. Um, I, I thought I should give her the opportunity because hmm. it was true. I didn't know anything about being a ten-year-old girl, <laughs> you know. But um, so it did work Say, out. Say, did you go to college? I, yeah. When did you yeah. fit that in? I went to. Uh, I did went you go to college before you came to uh, San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I went to one. Two, three. By the time I got to San Francisco in in the in May of '67, which was the summer of love, right? I had already been I had been to three universities, so I was going to go to San Francisco State. That was going to be my mm -hmm. fourth college in three years. And so I went to I went to University of Buffalo, and then um, I left that and I went to um, I went to NYU. Um, and then that didn't work out for me. I left NYU. Then I went to Hunter College in New York. Where's Hunter? Where's Hunter? We split. Hunter is on, it's on 68th Street around Lexington Avenue uh -huh. in Manhattan. Right. And um, and then uh, we I, I applied um, to San Francisco State and I was uh, accepted. And and that was really it's really great. Of course, we that's when all hell broke loose in San Francisco yeah. State. And did you know? Did you know? Did you know Kay Boyle? That certainly sounds familiar. Yeah. So, yeah. So Kay Boyle was uh, sixty four, sixty five at the time, roughly, and I was twenty one. She was my writing teacher. I studied oh. fiction with her. Now she she was in Paris with. Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein and all and Samuel Beckett and um, Joyce. She was in Paris as a young woman um, at the time, which was really extraordinary. And she she so she sort of took me under her wing, and I studied uh, writing with her when I was twenty one. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, that's when uh, remember Hayakawa, um, you know, pulled the. Yeah, what did he do? Well, he he pulled the he pulled the the cord on on the loudspeaker because uh, there was a protest and and he didn't want anybody hearing what was being uh -huh. said. 
So he pulled the cords. And so she was the faculty member who yelled, Hayakawa Eichmann. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she yelled, Hi. It was all over the newspapers. Hayakawa Eichmann. So that was Kay, et cetera. She was, uh, she was very, very uh, involved in the anti-war mm. movement. She was arrested at the Open Induction Center and sent to uh, Santa Rita Prison for um, a little while. Um, uh, she was a great, really great, great mm. person and really great influence mm. on me. Um, you know, I was a young writer. I didn't know if I was. I did. I. I don't. I, I think I didn't know how to do anything in writing. But she seemed to like what I was doing and um, kind of mm. nurtured it. Mm. So, did you continue at San Francisco? No, no. I left and got a job in the post office. Which post office? <laughs> I worked at. Uh, well, I uh, first they hired me at Terminal Annex downtown. Yeah. Then they sent me to Visitation Valley. Then they sent me to Chinatown. And then I ended up delivering mail on the Presidio. Oh, that's Army cool. Place. That's a nice walk. It was very cool because the other the other guy there were two, there were three of us three guys. Um, there was me, and you know by then I was you know I looked like every other long haired guy in San Francisco. My my coworker was a Baha'i uh-huh. <laughs> um, guy. He had hair down down below his butt, and he and I had the most wonderful conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then there was one other guy who was sort of our you know he was you know he was a little bit older than us, so I would go to the Presidio every day and deliver. You know, deliver mail on mm. base during during the Vietnam War. Mm. <laughs> it was a pretty a lot of disjunct there, David. I worked at Rink on Annex a little in '66. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, we'd did. smoke pot on our breaks. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I remember that. I used to buy hash uh. the <laughs> uh. <laughs> from my my coworkers. It was, you know. It was reliable because you had to see him the next day. So uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. I loved it. I loved I it. about it. Uh, yeah. I, I got them that they had me originally, you know, sorting mail. That was too boring. Then, then, they, th- then I moved yeah. up to the person who walked past all the people sorting them and putting them in these, uh, uh, like, long boxes. And then, then oh, yeah. uh, they needed somebody to unload trucks. And I could unload an entire forty-foot oh, yeah. bed truck by myself, and I loved it. And it wasn't—it wasn't, it wasn't though that you know when you when you get a job in the post office, you you, you take a a, a test, uh, what's it, civil service, and right. you get a particular designation. Yep. I didn't have the right designation to do that, but uh, they kept sneaking me over there to do that. And uh, also, you could. You could, um, you know, I'd work one day and then call out sick and come back. Uh, I'd skip two days and come back. You didn't need a doctor's letter if you did that. I was working one day out of three. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not bad. You know, I, you, just, you just jogged you jogged my memory about how things worked back then. I, 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 I don't know why, but at some point I had taken... The, the tests for the post office. Mm-hmm. But I was, my wife at the time got 
a really bad case mm. of hepatitis. She was really sick, really, really sick. And, and I didn't know what to do because we, were, we had no money. We were running out of money. So I called my, my dad and I told him, she's really sick. Um, she can't even get out of bed. We're down to $80. Um, I don't know what to do. And he said, call your congressman, call your local representative, and tell him what's going on. So the next day, I, I, I'm struggling now to remember his name because I, you, you would know his name. For, you were there at the time. I was at Tassahara. Anyway, um, um, yeah. Oh, you were at Tassahara, yeah. So I called my local yeah, congressman. Yeah, but I'd know his name. And I'd know I, his name, yeah. I, Go on. I, I can't remember. Anyway, I, I, I called and I spoke to a secretary and I said, so here's the deal. I'm 21 years old. My wife is 21 years old. She's very, very sick. She's got hepatitis. Um, she, we have no money to pay the rent. We're down to $80. That's all we have. And, and I need help. And she said, uh, I'll get back to you. The next day, the congressman's office called and said, did you take a federal exam? And I said, yes, I did. And they said, okay, give me your Social Security number. I gave them my Social Security number. They hung up. They called back not long after, and they said, you start work tomorrow for the post office. Go down to Terminal Annex. They got me a job. Ah. Uh, Isn't uh. that incredible? Huh. I thought, wow, that's how it works. <laughs> that's that's the way things work sometimes. Uh. I I had forgotten about that until you just mentioned Rincon uh, Annex. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wow. So uh, then um, now, uh, what, what? How many books have you published? Uh, all total. Yeah. Um, about um, 15 or 16 or 17, something like that. My, my. And uh, look, you got a website. Yeah, but I was told by somebody that it's, it's 20 years out of date. <laughs> yeah. But it is just, you know, it's just peterlevitt.com. But uh, um, yeah, somebody's going to fix it for me because they said you don't even have your books. Your books aren't on it, or they're not all there, or it's too. It's old. No, it doesn't function because <laughs> I don't know anything about that stuff. I don't pay attention to it. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, yeah. There, I see you. I see you there. What I'm thinking about now: biography, recent work, other books. Yeah, uh, that's the part. Is that it's not. It's not. It's not up to date. I, there, I think there have been several books since. Um, one hundred butterflies is featured there on on it. Oh yeah. But when did yeah, that come was, out? Well, that that came out in ninety two or three, and then the press went bad. Uh huh. Um, a reissued. Went, yeah. Yeah, and then it was then. So then it's been reissued, and you know people like it. You know, it's just I should send you one. It's just a, you know it's little short poems based on my practice, really. Um, but not, you know, they don't point at Zen. But you know, I know, I know that that's where the poems come from. Mm -hmm. um, no, and, don't uh, Well, I'll get it. I'll get it. And yeah, and so, 
Yeah, but then, you know, I don't know what else is on there. I, I actually haven't looked at it in years. Recent I, sure work. All right, let me show. Within, within. Right, so that's a, 2007. A Flock of Fools. Yeah, that's with Cause. Moon. That's a, a finger painting on the moon. Yeah. Oh, right, finger painting on the moon. Moon's real big on that. Uh, oh, here, I can read it on the left. Writing and creativity is a path to freedom. All right, here. Uh, that's, uh, so that's 2003. Right, 2004, A Flock of Fools, Ancient Buddhist Tales of Wisdom and Laughter from the 100 Parable Sutra. Translated right. by yes. Peter Levitt and Kazuaki Tanahashi. 2008, right. Within Within, read what people say about this book. And then 100 Butterflies uh, reissue. All right. Now, right. wait a minute. Other books. Ha, ha, ha. See, that's one page. Where is You've got another one that says other books. All right, wait a minute. Didn't oh, go yeah. on you. Come on. Is that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I see it now. I'm seeing it. I, I don't know if it. other books is going anywhere. I'm clicking on it, and I'm not getting anything. Yeah. Uh, all right. What's not there is, is the you know the um, oh I like, get it. Uh, essential Dogen's not there. Hanshan's not there. Um, you know I don't I don't know what's there and what's not. There. Well, it's a nice simple website. It's easy to do. Uh, all right, publications. All right, now, then we've got three links. Oh, I see. They're right below. Books written by Peter. All right. All right. Well, here. Well, here I'm going to read some that that weren't. Uh, that I haven't already listed. Bright Root, Dark Root. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, homage, Leda as Virgin. Right. Hmm. That's A right. Book of Light and Running Grass. And that says Poems 1970 to 1972. Oh, oh, 77. You're right. It's a right. little small. Right. Then it says, Two Bodies, Dark Velvet. There's no link on that. The others have links. And then it says, uh -huh. Poems. Did you do a book called Poems? I did. It was my first <clears throat> my first small book. I was so uh, so shy that I didn't, <laughs> I couldn't come up with a name. So I just said, just call it Poems. <laughs> <laughs> and here it says, that's funny. That's good. I think it's terrific. Books edited by <laughs> Peter Levitt, uh, Jacques Cho Kwong's No Beginning, No End, and The Intimate... Oh, No Beginning, No End, The Intimate Heart of Sin, right. and The Heart of Understanding by Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, right, that's his teaching on the Heart Sutra. Is that post-Arnie Kotler? Uh, yeah, well, that was Arnie... It's not post-Arnie Kotler. Uh, well, I mean, it's, you know, Arnie... Uh, Arnie um, had me do the book. Yeah. Um, with to, um, so that yeah, was that Parallax was when, Press. That was when Arnie had Parallax. Yeah. Yeah, it's when Arnie had Parallax. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that was a great, that was great fun. I, I got to tell you, doing that book was really oh, fun. Oh, that's neat. And then books translated by you, A Flock of Fools, right. Oh, With Cause, and Sky right. Stones by Pablo right. Neruda. 
What What's right. the symbolism in sky stones? Because that's a, a Zen thing too. Yeah, it, not for not for Neruda. This is you know this these are basically the stones from Chile um, that he wrote poems about. Um, it's called um, in Spanish Las Piedras del Cielo, so the stones of the sky. Um, and there's no particular symbolism um, uh-huh. with it, uh-huh. but there's some gorgeous. Uh, uh, if I could find it, there's a some really beautiful poems in there oh i yeah i can you want to hear one of the neruda translations Are you interested sure in? uh yeah i like this one um yeah this this is beautiful this is silence silence concentrates itself in stone Circles close around themselves. The trembling world, wars, birds, houses, cities, trains, forests. The wave repeating questions of the sea. The next journey of dawn. Everything comes to stone. Nut of the sky. Skillful witness. The dust-covered stone on the road knows Peter. Those who came before him and even water since its birth. It is the earth's mute word, saying nothing, because it is heir to the first silence, the motionless sea, the empty earth. Before wind, stone was there. Before man and dawn. Its first movement, the first music of the river. Mm. I think that is gorgeous poem. Mm. Mm. Do do you um uh what what's your background in in language? Like if you're translating Chinese, you work with um well we we'd say a native speaker. I mean somebody yeah, right. you know actually uh you don't have to speak Chinese to be a native right. reader of it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So she is, a, you know, so for example, if I'm working in Chinese, <clears throat> we'll say for Yin Mountain with uh, Rebecca Nia, who's my uh, co-translator and partner, friend. Um, so, of course, so she selects the poems from, you know, she does this enormous amount of research. And then she will send me the poem, she'll send me the characters, and she'll also send me a literal um, word by word, which yeah. is very, very helpful to me, because then what I do is I look up every character. I yeah. read every character myself. Um, and then I have an idea of what I'm seeing, and I see what she's seeing. And then she provides me a kind of interpretation that she, that she has, um, which is really helpful to me, because even though I can read every character, I, I can't get the syntax very easily. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I need, I need someone to help me sort out what I'm looking at. I, I mean, it's literally, I, I, I see every single word, but sometimes I have no idea what's being said. Right. At right. all. 
Right. And so, and so, of course, this is you know, and this was true with Cos as well, um, and it's true with uh, Rebecca, um, and so uh, you know, that's that's how I'm able to come up and make the you know the translation, and it is with it's really a close collaboration because there are many times that I'll suggest something, maybe Cos will say no, 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 that's not what it means, that's not what it says, um, it says this. And then we'll discuss that, or with Rebecca, I'll say something. She'll say, "Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's a good way to say that. That's good." Or she'll say, "No, it's not, not quite right. That's not how that word was used in, you know, the 900s." <laughs> you know, so it's it's really, you know, for someone who's word oriented or logos oriented as I am, um, it's it's just fun. I mean, it's deep, it's deeply interesting. Yeah. Well, what about Spanish? I speak Spanish. How'd that come about? Well, my mom, my mom liked it, and so she used to talk, um, sometimes talk, um, you know, in Spanish to me. And then when it was time for me to go to school, I learned. I, I immediately, I had it in my ear already, so I, um, I, um, I just picked it up right away, and so Spanish came very naturally to me. Mm. So mm. I can, you know, I can read it and translate it. And, Mm. You know, I've been doing that most of my life, actually. I'm laughing behind to myself because it's more than 65 years. <laughs> you you were in L.A., and now you're in uh, Salt Springs, yeah, British Columbia. British yeah. Columbia. Uh, were right. you in any other places in between? Uh, I, well, let's see. I, I went to school at... So I left New York. I went to UB, to Buffalo. Then I went back to the city. I went to NYU. I went to Hunter College. I went to San Francisco State. So I moved to the West Coast. Then in 69, I moved back to Buffalo. I finally got my bachelor's degree. I got a master's degree in Buffalo. And then uh, I moved to L.A. And I stayed in L.A., um, in different places, Santa Monica, uh, Malibu, Topanga Canyon, um, and had two marriages there, and then um, I oh, met my wife oh, early. Oh, wait a minute. When you wife. say you had two marriages there, are you including your first marriage? Yeah, yeah. So my first marriage was, <clears throat> was there, then that broke up, then I had another marriage. That broke up, and then I met my wife, Shirley, with, you know, who I've been with for 35 plus years. Aha. Uh -huh. um, and, and we moved, we moved to, um, to British Columbia. Why did you move to L.A. to begin with, the L.A. area? Now, the places where you were living in L.A. sound pretty cool. Yeah, they were. Well, we came because, we, so uh, our daughter was not adjusting to the harsh winters in Buffalo. Yeah, <laughs> she, she couldn't get well. She was she was always sick. Oh, and and um, and she was just couldn't be well. So we went to the, her pediatrician one day, and he said, um, "You know, I've seen this. There are some babies, some children who just cannot take this environment. It's too harsh." So I would suggest you go to the West Coast. Go to, go to the desert. Go to Arizona. Go to Los Angeles. Go, and I said, "Well, I have a friend in Los Angeles," and he said, "Go there, because yeah. he's not going to get well. Yeah. He's not going to get well. You're going to have a sick. This child is going to be sick her whole life." So I said, "Okay." Wow. Wow. We got in the car and drove west. 
Wow. So uh, yeah. how did you decide to move to BC? So um, in You're somebody who left America because of Bill Clinton. Yeah. People have done it because of George Bush and because of Reagan and because of Nixon. Yeah, <laughs> well, I was, I was raised, I mean, we didn't get into this, but I, I was, you know, my grandfather was a socialist labor organizer. Uh-huh. And, um, and I was raised, you know, far left. Um, and, um, and so that was always with me. Mm-hmm. And and I thought Clinton's pushing the country to the right. I don't want to be around this, and and I can't go to the beach anymore. But unfortunately, Shirley's family had two hundred years of roots in Canada. Her mother was born in Canada, mm. and um, and so she basically she hadn't claimed it yet, but she was a Canadian citizen. Oh, and so I. I said to her, we got to get out of here. I want to leave. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm not going to raise another child in Los Angeles. I can't. I'm 50 years old. I can't imagine chasing a child down the streets of Los Angeles when there's guns everywhere and the country's going crazy anyway. And so we decided to check out, you know, a friend mentioned Salt Spring Island. We came up here and fell in love with it the first day and said, that's it. We're moving to Canada. Cool. And because... Because, um, I mean, actually, it's a funny story, David, because we had just bought our first house in Topanga Canyon five days earlier. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah, we had just bought a house, and um, we came to Salt Spring. Shirley was pregnant, and um, we were walking up this mountain path. 
it was cold, rainy, foggy, you know, misty, terrible. And I loved it. Um, and, and I said into the fog, do you love this as much as I do? And Shirley said, yes. And I said, we have to sell the house. And she said, thank you. And that was our whole conversation. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we came home and we decided, that's it. We're moving to Canada. That's it. We're, we're gone. We're leaving. It, w- it was hard because I was leaving my daughter behind. Um, Shirley's family lived 10 minutes away from us. Um, people were really upset. Um, we had a sangha down there. I was leading a sangha down there. Oh, you didn't I, mention I, that. I, Tell me about that. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> so, but uh, we just decided to go. Yeah. We just said, that's it. We, we got to leave. You know, I can't, I can't. Well, you got to go back to your sangha down there. Well, that was, <clears throat> so in, um, in, um, in 86 or seven, something like that now, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. In 86, I built a little room. We're, uh, I was living with my second wife. I built a little outdoor room, like a little zendo, you know, little 10 by 12 or 10 by 15 or something like that. Um, to meditate in, and I was teaching uh, poetry writing classes. That's how I was supporting myself, and um, and uh, you know my students. They were private classes. I had ten students at a time or something, and they you know they were uh, interested in what I was doing. And I said, well, I sit zazen, etc. You know, and so people started to come, and. Um, and I taught them to sit, and, and people started to come to practice together. And um, uh, Jokshu uh, came down one day and sort of gave us okay. Yeah, this is a good thing. Why don't you do that? He said, "Don't uh, don't teach Dharma. Just you can teach people to sit, but I don't want you to give Dharma talks now." I said, "That's fine. I don't have anything I want to say anyway." <laughs> so, <laughs> mm. and um, and. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's how that began. And then after that marriage broke up, and then Shirley and I got together, we moved to Topanga Canyon. Um, we had a zendo in our house, and we formed what was called the Topanga Zen, um, what was it called, the Topanga Zen Circle, or Topanga Zen, I can't remember anymore. I think Topanga Zen Circle, something. It was associated with um, Genchochi, with Sonoma Mountain. Mm. And... And I had, you know, I had permission to do what I was doing, leading, you know, leading practice, et cetera. And, um, and then we uh, decided to leave America. And hmm. so I left all of that behind, which was very hard, David, because, um, you know, I was very fond of the people. And they were fond of us. And, you know, we had a whole life there. But I, it was really... Um, It was it, it, it was a non-negotiable moment. Hmm. I really did not want to be in the country anymore. I just thought this country has gone to hell. And this was 90, 96. And um, so that's it. We moved. Uh, you've gotten hold of me, uh, you know, now and then through the years about uh, um, 
you know, accessing Suzuki, uh, Shinyu Suzuki lectures. And uh, what have you done with them? I mean, what was that about? Well, I, I use them. <clears throat> I, you know, I, I, um, you know, if I find uh, talks uh, that either he gives or that where there's a transcript, I make them available. I, you know, I, I send the link to the Sangha and say, you should listen to this or you should read this. Or, mm-hmm. you know, this is, or, or I find something that touches, you know, a core of something for me. And I'll write an email to the Sangha and I'll say, Suzuki Roshi said this in 1969 or 1967. And then I'll, I'll write an email Dharma talk to people. Ah, now you said if there's a transcript, there's transcripts for all of them. There's nothing without yeah. a transcript. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've been using them um, mm. over the years. In fact, just um, at the last, at our last Sunday uh, study session, um, uh, the, the, the person who was going to lead it was basing it on a talk that Maureen Stewart gave uh, that was in her book, Subtle Sound. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she mentioned Tozan Zenji. And um, Jokshu had given me a copy of Tozan's poem mm. written, out by, written out by Suzuki Roshi in his handwriting, both the, both the characters and English. And so I pulled that up and said, well, you know, here she's talking about what happened when Tozan was crossing the bridge and looking at his reflection. Okay, here's the poem he wrote, and, um, and here, here is Suzuki Roshi's translation of that poem. Wow, could you send me that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love it. Yeah. And um, I'll uh, I'll make oh, a I little page it. for you, and I'll post it on it. That you know. Great. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yes, I, 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 I'm glad you will because I thought you had that, but if you don't have it, you uh, it doesn't sound so. familiar. And there's not a yeah. great deal in his hand. Very little. And I have. Oh, really? Yeah, I have everything that I've ever been able to get my hands on uh, like that on kuke.com. Do you know his translation of it? No. I'm going to read it to you. I just called it up. Yeah. So isn't the electronic world wild? I mean, it's just so wild. I can just, we can talk about this and all of a sudden I just pull it up on the screen. Yeah. Do not try to see objective world. You, which is given as an object to see, is quite different from you yourself. I am going my own way, and I meet myself, which include everything I meet. I am not something which I can see as an object. When you understand self, which include everything, you have your true way. Mm. Gee, I'd, I'd correct his grammar there, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to read what what he, what wrote, he actually you know, wrote. Wanna... Right. Yeah. I know. You yeah. know, there's a thing in language, uh, and I'm certainly guilty of it in Japanese and Indonesian. Uh, is it's called fossilization. You just get to a certain point, and you don't learn after that are just certain 
things you're doing, you just keep doing them. And his, I'm, right. I'm you know, I, 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 I'm doing something with some lecture of his every day for ShinYuSuzuki.com or for a blog post uh, or something or, or we'll be going over uh, a transcript. Uh, there's, there's these new ones they found at Zen Center. Yeah, I've been excited about them. I've been listening to them and watch and, and reading them. They're fabulous. Yeah, yeah. We've been working with uh, Engage Wisdom, um, a uh, business uh, that uh, contracted with Zen Center to get them together, run by a couple of Zen students. Uh, Charlie Wilson, who uh, has a studio over in Oakland, and uh, Shundo David Hayes. Uh, and mainly at Shundo and and uh, Peter Ford and uh, Wendy Piercy have been working on those things, uh, you know, getting them transcribed. And we've been making, uh, you know, everybody goes over them. And uh, basically, I've been a consultant. You know, I've 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 done some uh, some work on them. I, I did, I only did one complete one, uh, but. You know, they ask me questions. I get questions, and I write Shoaka Ogamer and stuff like that. We make uh, verbatim transcripts, and then we make right. light edit transcripts. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but you know, it takes time. It's very slow. I mean, doing, doing first light edits were made by somebody reading Cuke.com in 1999. <laughs> he did a whole wow. slew of them because I was posting wow. stuff. You know. And that was, he, and he was an early Suzuki student who lived in um, Norway. Uh, but um, uh, I don't know. I forget what I, if I was making a point. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, we were, you were talking about the transcripts. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, oh, you said if there's a transcript. Uh, yeah, well, you were talking about fossilization. Oh, fossilization. Right. That's it. That's it. Thank you. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, his, his, uh, mistakes with, uh, singular, plural, and articles and pronouns right. are, you know, he just doesn't improve from, right. from, uh, when I arrived. Uh, and it, I get mad at him, you know? Yeah, but, you know, I mean, okay, I'm going to defend him for a second here. I, I don't disagree with you. But his vocabulary was, it, it kind of amazes me. Oh, no, that, that's good. I'm just talking about that grammar thing. Yeah. 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 No, he, 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 um, he, uh, yeah, he, he, he really had a, uh, uh, a useful and often creative grasp of English. It was quite, it was yeah. quite excellent. Oh, ab absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, so I, I tremendously enjoy reading those transcripts. So what I do now, because you have the tapes and, <clears throat> excuse me, you have the tapes and you have the transcripts together, is I put on the tape and I listen to his voice for a little while. And then because he's speaking so slowly, right, my metabolism is faster than his mm -hmm. speech. You know, so I I just read ahead while I hear his voice. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and yeah. it's very pleasurable. 
it's it's how I did the yeah, it's how I did the uh, the heart of understanding the Thich Nhat Hanh book. Mm. I did it exactly the same way. I kept his voice in my he- my head so I could I could keep the flavor of his language, and then I had five or six transcripts of him giving talks on the Heart Sutra in front of me, and I just circled whatever the best phrasing was as he was talking and as I was reading. And that ended up being, you know, the book as if he had only said it once, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. But with Suzuki Roshi, with Suzuki Roshi, it's really, um, you know, it's really a great treasure, I have to say. I'm so, I'm re- I'm so grateful. I mean, I'm one of the many people who are grateful for all the work you're doing. But it's really a treasure. It's really great. And, you know, because... You know, I like you, I've been at this a long time, and a lot of people in the Sangha, they haven't been at it so long, you know. I think the beside me and Shirley, who's been at it for 35 years or so, and um, there's one other person who's practiced for 30-plus years. And, um, and the rest of the people, mostly it's 20 years or less. So this is all new to them. You know, all the Suzuki talks, that are not in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, or in the in the last two books that you did. You know, um, this is all new stuff to them. They're very excited by it. They're very inspired by it. They love it. You know, so that's how I use it. I just keep inju- introducing it. Yeah, um, you know, I've been working as an archivist, and I never, uh, I've really, you know, one of the shortcomings of ShunyuSuzuki.com has been, uh, well. I, I think has been uh, making clear which are the best ones. But there is one way we do that. If you go to the lecture search form, actually is what it's called, There, there's a subject, uh, there's drop-down menus, uh, and there's uh, uh, people who were working on Suzuki uh, verbatim transcripts in 2000 chose, I don't know how many, 40, 50, uh, lectures. Oh, really? Fact checker here, forty-two. Oh, that you can you can just line them up. You can hit the recommended drop-down menu, and that's the only thing in it. There's nothing special selection. There can be many more selected. The nothing special series, and all those will line up. You can hit the Blue Cliff Records. You can go for yep. ones given in Los Altos. A number of different things. Uh, and are those the audio, or the or, are they the audio tapes? It's all together. You you go to the lecture, and the first thing it does is suggest the uh, verbatim version transcript. But it says more files. You hit more files, you see what other transcripts are available, uh, lightly edited from the wind bell, uh, whatever's available there. You see if there's any audio. Some of them have several audio available and there's links to those things there right uh you can click audio as one of your things so you would only get the ones with audio uh you know there's several drop down menus so you can make different types of decisions it's actually pretty sophisticated uh and peter ford is the one that's that uh he's created that entire thing he's been working with me for i don't know a dozen years he's always working on it He's always working on it. It's, it's. Uh, I call him the managing director of Cuke Archives, and oh, and I'm special projects, special projects, uh, like 
today I'll be reading. I'm I'm reading. Thank you and okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's an audio book, and you know I go sort of slow, but I think I'll finish it in July, and uh, then give it to Shambhala. And um, I've been uh, editing Suzuki Audio. We've never done that. Nobody has ever done that, and I love doing that. And that well, is something when I get through, uh, that's something I plan to keep working on and at some point concentrate on because it really helps. Uh, yeah. And that's when I say cool. editing audio, I'm not cutting out. I'm not doing a literary or even a dharmic. I'm doing one for sound, uh, cutting right. out excessive pauses, uh, cutting out... Uh, you know, doing a noise reduction that is specific to each one and not too much because uh, the background sounds good. Uh, taking out coughs, that's the, oh, God. That must be the, the most frequent thing. That and when he says you know. But I don't take out yeah. when he says you know. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, well, maybe I do sometimes. I don't know. I, I do in the light edits, good Lord. Um, taking out, oh, like if he starts a sentence, he does this all the time. He's looking for what to say. He'll start it, and then he'll stop, and then he'll start it a different way. I cut out the first one, you know. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, But someone, if they want to hear it, exactly as he said, it, it's still there. Yeah. But that's going yeah. very slow. Yeah. Uh, it is, yeah. Well, uh, it's. I mean, it's. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's I like doing that. I like doing that. I've just got too many things going, you know. Uh, well, you know, you have some technology that's pretty good. I mean, you know, I there was a period where I was, um, I was typing up um, Jacques Chouquang's uh, some of his Dharma talk. Um, on a cassette tape. So you know what that was like, right? A few words, stop the tape, type, a few words, stop the... It took forever. Uh-huh. It's just unbelievable, you know, how slow it was. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, it's a good way to study with somebody. <laughs> yeah. What somebody is saying. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it becomes it, it becomes phrase by phrase. And, yeah. you know, the phrasing is the phrasing is important. What I'm interested in now is um, uh, good voice recognition software. Uh, mm. Now, now to, 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 to get it for me, for my voice, that that's the easy part. But to get it one that can deal with all sorts of different voices. Uh, mm. uh, anyway... Um, um, that's something I want to get into because I want to I want to have the transcriptions for all these uh, podcasts right. because you know oral history is really hard to access yeah. um, and uh, so I really I mean personally I relate to the written word like you say you just listen to some of Suzuki's voice and then you start reading it right, um, right. Now, there are people who have listened to every audio and some of them are wow. really hard to, you know, uh, very low mm -hmm. quality. Um, mm -hmm. And there's people who've listened multiple times to it. I mean, I, cause I get emails. There's different types of people, but mainly people mm -hmm. read it. 
Huh. All right. Well, um, gee, um, we've we've gone. I'm sure we've gone on at least two hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I'm sorry. I you know once we start getting into the storytelling, you know, it becomes it becomes a whole thing of its own. But it's it's been really great to talk with you. I appreciate yeah. it. I'm oh. grateful for the call. Yeah, it did really, no, it's very, you know, I'm interested. Uh, it's great. It's great talking with you. Uh, and, uh, yeah, come visit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've wanted to go to Bali. I don't, know if I'll, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but it's possible. If I do, I will. Uh, I, I have you. a son and uh, a beloved oh, yeah? first ex-wife that live in Spokane. And, oh, you know, right? I have friends in Port Townsend, although, um, you know, um, Nils Holm died. Did you ever know him? No, I didn't. No, he was very close. And, you know, his, the people he was closest to in Port Townsend were uh, Silas Hoadley, who was right. Suzuki's, mm. mm, Silas was like Suzuki to Richard Baker at mm -hmm. Zen Center. And, yeah. um, and and yeah. Bill Kwong was too in a different way, but Bill yeah. had separated himself. So right. uh, I'd say as a Dharma area, it was very important. But uh, but Silas, you know, there wasn't room for Silas in Zen Center after Suzuki died. So he, mm. you know, after a while, uh, he wandered off, yeah. and he's been up there for years. He's 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 got dementia, but. Um, um, can still say hello, and uh, I have to. Um, Bill Bill Porter's gonna uh, sees him once a week, and they they go get a mocha or oh. something, and so I'm oh, gonna good. be calling him two in the morning here, uh, mm. like eleven a.m. there on Friday. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Bill Porter, Bill Porter, and I have been in touch recently because of the Yin Mountain book. Oh. Oh, that's he good. Said, he, yeah, he said. Uh, he said, "I'm glad somebody is finally making, bringing access to these poems." So. Oh, good. Yeah, well, he wrote, he wrote a he wrote a very nice blurb for the book. And, oh well, hell, that really means something. Yeah. That yeah. that in my mind, that's the ultimate blurb you can get. Yeah. But, <laughs> well, I I told Shambhala that they said, "Who do you want to get?" I said, "Red Pine." What do you mean? <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Let's get him. Yeah. He and I met at Montreal Poetry Festival years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's great. And, uh, he's great. He's a great guy. He really yeah, is. He is. He is a great guy, and, and what he's made available is spectacular. Hey, listen to his podcast. I did a podcast with him a couple of years ago. It's long, too. Oh, you did? Oh, man, listen oh, yeah. to that thing. It's really interesting. Oh, I will. <laughs> okay, David. All right. I, I, you, you got a good night's sleep. I got four hours last night, so I'm going to go to bed because it's 9.20 here. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I did. I got eight hours, three nights in a row. This is unheard of. I, I'm, I never get eight hours. <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, that I usually can't. Uh, yeah. Uh, but... Anyway, I'm I'm not regular, but I I love that. That was good. Okay, uh, very good. good. Great Take to talk care. To you. Thank you, Damon. Yeah, I, thanks. By the way, so. I sent you the, I just sent you the Tozan poem, so it'll be in your email now. Cool, cool. Okay. Yeah.
Great. Thanks a lot. Okay, take good care. You Thank too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. So thank you very much, Peter Levitt. That was most interesting. Um, well, yeah. Uh, thanks for all you've done, for all you've written and translated. And We should get you back and just have you read poetry, you know, do another one. Um, okay. Oh, hey, I want to say one thing. You know, when I was saying... Uh, we were talking about how we like physical work and stuff, and I said, yeah, I used to do everything like you, you know, like I mentioned it, uh, installing gas lines, which I didn't want to do. Um, and uh, uh, I said, here, in Bali, you know, I don't do anything. Well, that's true, I don't do that type of stuff, but I wanted uh, to save my reputation, say that, no, I do kitchen work. I clean the kitchen. <laughs> I Well, I don't do the floors because our housekeeper takes such good care of the floors. I mean, good Lord. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, I do a lot of dishes, and I sweep the courtyard, and I sweep out in front of the house every morning like a good citizen. Like That's like uh, a national thing here in Indonesia, the broom. And, you know... Uh, they're not like American brooms. They're like, you know, all these strands of, I don't know what it is, like straw with a handle on it. Some sort of dried grass that holds together. And various other things like that. But um, uh, anyway, if, if you live in a, a third world country, uh, and uh, do everything yourself. It's not very nice to the people there because they depend on getting jobs and it's very cheap uh, in order to support themselves. And so, uh, anyway, just wanted to mention that. This has been a Cuke Audio podcast. I'm DC Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Senor with Doggy Bandita, Feline Cuchita, and dear lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. Mm -hmm.